Today's sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, and the title is Relinquishing My Rights for Christ. Relinquishing My Rights for Christ, First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, and uh, as you are making your way there to that sermon text, uh, I want to again welcome you to today's gathering, and I'm so thankful and uh, quite grateful that God has afforded us this opportunity to be together again and this is a unique opportunity for us and you may ask well don't we do this each and every Sunday what makes today unique and different than any other Sunday and uh, that's a good question it's a fair question the answer the answer for which we find that God intends through his word today through the work of his spirit to speak his truth to each and every person who is gathered here. God has something to say to you today. And so this is not just a mere uh, demonstration or representation of me standing before us, but this is, this is us gathering together as a family in Christ with humble hearts to understand what is it that God wants us to know about his son today. And how will this inform the way that we live. So we're thankful that you're here, grateful that you're here, and uh, I want to invite you to worship with me as I serve as our verse, as I serve as our voice to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me in is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Bartimaeus and I not have a right to refrain from working, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes. For our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things so that it will be better or so that it will be done so in my case. 
For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and let's join our hearts in prayer and ask for his help. God, we do thank you for allowing us to be here together again today. This is a, this is a gift and privilege from you. And we pray that we would steward this responsibility well. And God, we pray that you would help us, Lord, over the next few minutes to listen to your word and, Lord, to joyfully submit to all of your commands. We ask that in Christ's name, amen. What is more important to you? What is more important to you? To do good or to be right? Let me ask that question again. What is more important to you? To do good or to be right? When you think of what is fair, what are the things that begin to come to your mind? What are the rights in your life that you feel entitled to? What happens when somebody doesn't share the same value in the very things that you have put your value in? How do you react when a brother or sister in Christ, when you think or perhaps become offended when they begin to challenge the very things that you believe that you are entitled to? These are some really important questions that I believe 1 Corinthians 9 has helpful answers for. We know that each chapter of the Bible is not detached from the letter as a whole. So this 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is not in some ways a, a detached from the rest of the message of 1 Corinthians, nor is it a disconnect from the entire message of the Bible? As the title of this series suggests, the gospel is our life. 
And Paul is continuing what he began in the chapter that we considered last week, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8, where knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Additionally, he is furthering the discussion from chapter 8, verse 9, where he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's taking up this discussion once again to help us understand how we ought to live in light of the gospel with one another. So this morning we're going to attempt to understand this passage under these three headings. First of all, rights and expectations from verses 1 through 12a. Secondly, we're going to look at the gospel as being more important than our own rights. Also verses 12 through 18. And lastly, gospel living. Loving others in order to win them to Christ. Loving others in order to win them to Christ. Verses 19 through 27. So first of all, rights and expectations in verses 1 through 12. Paul begins with a defense. It's not clear to what extent. It's not even clear whether or not Paul is being, or his, it's not clear whether or not his apostleship is coming under attack. We don't even know if whether or not it's even being questioned. So at the very least, he is providing context to his apostleship. He asks these questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen our Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't you, Corinthians, my workmanship? You are the seal of my apostleship. So in his apostleship, what Paul is doing here is he is appealing to credibility that is outside of his control and outside of his ability. He is an eyewitness to the Lord, which is a gift from God to be able to see Jesus Christ. He is not self-appointed. He's not here with his own message and through his own ambition. He was set apart by God. We can see that in Acts chapter 9 when God removed the scales from his eyes and told Ananias that this is my servant Saul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. He cannot worry or answer each of the critics outside the church. So what does he do? He makes his appeal to the Corinthians. He seeks to have this conversation with them. And this conversation is filled with all kinds of questions and several examples. He is appealing to them out of love for them. And he is appealing to them to ensure that they have a foundational understanding of the gospel. I mean, hasn't this study in 1 Corinthians so far been quite remarkable? In the first three chapters of this wonderful book, Paul is laying the foundation of the gospel. As he starts addressing each of the issues, he doesn't just stop and assume that the Christians already got that. He doesn't just assume, well, you, you know the gospel because I spent the first three chapters telling you about it. Therefore, you ought to understand it by now and there's no need for me to continue to revisit the foundation of the gospel. The gospel is thread through each of the issues he addresses. He is demonstrating to the Corinthians and we, ought, we have a front row uh, seat to view this, that this is how you go about making sure that the Bible is always in view Anytime you're addressing any issues, he's providing a template for the church on how to have a dialogue on matters involving what we believe are our rights 
and still be able to have this dialogue and maintain unity in the spirit. He is providing a template on how to encourage, excuse me, he's providing a template on how to engage an always changing culture. We will always have issues that threaten unity. We will always have issues that are attacking the doctrine and truth that the church is to hold uncompromisingly. In light of all of these things, what is constant? What is constant is the immutable God and his eternal word. So let's get right back to this defense that Paul is making. When he asks this question, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Are not you the seal of my apostleship? The defense that he gives toward those examining him is not an examination of self-promotion. Again, he's providing a tutorial on how to have a conversation over rights and expectations. In our flesh, in our pride, in our selfishness, we will assume that our rights ought to be everybody's rights. In our pride, we will impose our rights on others and become frustrated when they don't share the rights that we believe that we are entitled to. And we're going to see here in a few moments how Paul just turns that over and looks at it through the filter of the gospel. The goal, as we will examine more closely in a few minutes, is this. That there be no hindrance to the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause and let that sink deeply in us. No hindrance. None whatsoever. No hindrance to the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we consider our rights, just thinking about, about us individually, when we consider our rights, begin with what's most important. It's not me, it's not you, it's not our own right. It's the gospel. That's where we begin. This is the only way that a church can preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is when we die to our preference and gladly give up our rights when the gospel is at stake. If my rights are doctrinal, or are, there, are my rights doctrinal or are they personal? If personal, then happily lay them down for the progress of the gospel and the unity of the church. If doctrinal, then be willing to die on that hill. So what are some of these rights that Paul draws to the attention of the Corinthians. We see it here when he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Do we not have a right to refrain from working? Three examples that Paul uses to illustrate that those who work deserve some type of benefit. They deserve uh, fruit from their labors. What soldier is he going to serve at his own expense rather the army provides his possessions what about who one who is planting a vineyard does he not also enjoy the fruit are you going to tell him that he can't enjoy the fruit of his own vineyard what about those who tend the flock does he tend and not also use some of the milk what is the basis for determining the answers to such questions is a question that comes to mind verse 8 says the answer to that is not human authority it's not human authority that determines the answer to these questions for what each of us are entitled to. More specifically, 
what they are entitled to for laboring in the, in the gospel. No, it's the law, specifically the law of Moses as laid, as laid out in Deuteronomy 25.4, where he quotes it that you must not muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. Verses 13 and 14 again tell us and help us to see that those preaching the gospel make their living from preaching the gospel so that's rights and expectations secondly the gospel is more important than rights verses 12 through 18 the gospel is more important than rights this is this too is another power-packed paragraph on the gospel in these first 12 verses paul is laying the groundwork for the rights that he is entitled to but he, or we can distill this all down into one sentence. You are entitled to receive, receive fruit based on the labor and work that you've done. But as I mentioned earlier, the gospel turns this conversation of what we are entitled to, our, our rights, and forces us to see these rights and entitlements through a different filter. And that filter is being the word of God. We see this very clearly in verse 12. When Paul did not use this right, he didn't take up this right because he did not want there to be any hindrance to the gospel. We see our rights with redeemed eyes. We think of our rights with a new heart. We think of our rights through a transformed and renewed mind. Why is it that we need the gospel every day? Because every single morning, that the alarm goes off, our self that wants to live by our rights in our ways for our good and our pleasure is staring us in our crusty eyes waiting to once again take our very soul and life captive to its fleshly allegiance. Every day, every day we awake, our flesh is ready to take us captive. The gospel, however, transforms our thinking from what do I deserve? What am I entitled to to this? What have I received in Christ? You see how the gospel transforms the question. What are my rights? What am I entitled to? What have I received? What have I been given? What have I been freed from? Who am I now in bondage Two, Paul has labored to lay the foundation of the gospel to the Corinthians. Jesus Christ emptied himself. He set aside his eternal glory. So think about the rights that he possessed. He took on humanity. He became a sin offering. He replaced the resplendent glory of fellowship with God in order to be forsaken by God for the punishment of sin that he never committed. He left glory in order to experience our weakness to sympathize with us as the better high priest with every temptation that we have towards sin. Can you imagine, can you fathom what it must have been like for Jesus to even be tempted with sin? Can you fathom that? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, being tempted with sin. It's unfathomable. You could follow the progress of Paul's conversation up to this point, and you might start to assume now's the time where Paul is going to use this foundational for his rights and his privileges, his entitlements. Now is where he's going to talk to them 
about how they can compensate him or how they can take care of his needs. You can assume that that's the track that he's running on. But this was not his approach. He didn't do this. Why? Again, he did not want there to be any hindrance to the gospel. His preaching of the gospel is not about his basic needs being met. He was under compulsion. He was under compulsion. Look with me in verse 14. The Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is a right that is designated by the Lord. This is important in the discussion because once again, when you're talking about rights and what a person is entitled to or what they deserve, it is the Bible that speaks into these matters. It is the word of God that guides in these matters. It is the example of Christ who laid down his rights that serve as our example. And it's the Spirit of God that works the necessary and needed humility, meekness, and gentleness in us in order to handle these issues in a way where he is honored, the gospel is not hindered, and the church is not splintered with divisions and divisiveness. Paul gets this. He gets this. And he loves the Lord and he loves this church enough to say, don't allow these things to get in the way of what's most important. And we have the example, we have the person and the work of Christ as the backdrop for understanding our rights and our privileges and entitlements. In case there were any doubt where Paul stood on his rights, he answers it in two ways. One, he's not writing to make this claim. And secondly, that he would rather die. That he would rather die than have any man make his boast an empty one. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. That's a loaded statement. We don't understand his use of boasting here in the same way that we often understand it as it being associated with pride and conceit. He is preaching the gospel under compulsion. This compulsion comes from God. Therefore, any fruit... When he said earlier, you're my workmanship, you're the seal of my apostleship, any fruit that comes from his ministry is not attributed to Paul alone. This is what he's saying here. I have nothing to boast of in me personally. There's nothing to boast of in me. We know that from his testimony in Philippians. It is God that is doing the work through his gospel. This is this is, this is so remarkable. Consider the fruit associated with his ministry. Consider the churches that he started, the letters that he had written, the growing influence of his ministry in first century Christianity. And he is saying, in light of all of this, I have nothing to boast of. Nothing. Nothing. If I preach the gospel and something happens, it is God who is doing the work. Is this not what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It's by God's doing that you are in Christ who became to us wisdom, righteousness, our sanctification. It's he that also said in uh, chapter 3 verse 7, so neither he nor who plants nor he who waters is anything. God causes the growth. Or what we looked at last week in chapter 8 verse 6, we are from God, we exist for God, and we exist through Jesus Christ. It was Paul that said in chapter 3, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than the one which has been laid, and that's Jesus Christ. 
This teaching, this preaching is in such stark contrast to Paul's life prior to conversion. Philippians 3, this is what Paul said. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He counted all of these things as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is not only, or this woe is me if I do not preach the gospel is not only from a God-called spirit-wrought inner work of desire to preach Christ and Him crucified, but it also stems from a woe, there is nothing to do but preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do anything else. Woe is me if I do something else instead of preaching the gospel. Nothing can take the place of preaching the gospel. I have no other message. I have no, or I have nothing else to give to you but a crucified and risen Jesus Christ. I have nothing, is what Paul is saying to them. What is his reward? His reward is to preach the gospel free of charge and free from the burden that comes from taking up this right. It is, or what do you do with paying? This is something that the Old Testament speaks of, that the New Testament picks up in Luke 10, 7, Galatians 6, 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 through 18. As I was studying this passage again this week, it made me all the more thankful for the pastors this church has that does not, that, that, that do not receive compensation for their labors in the church. Pastor Hunter and Pastor Rick and Pastor Jim and formerly uh, Pastor Matt, each of these brothers are gifts to this church body. They, they faithfully serve well. The position of our pastors from the very start, all the way back in September 2006, the position was that we never wanted any financial compensation to be anything that would be a hindrance to the progress and ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what did that mean early on? It meant uh, Pastor Brian and myself, we got jobs. I worked at Starbucks. He worked at UPS. And for uh, uh, all three of us, Pastor Jordan including, that <clears throat> the three of us early on relied on jobs. We relied on outside support. Uh, some of our spouses were working. Um, minimal contributions when we, when we started. And we've been committed to doing all that we could over the years, even though uh, Jordan has suggested several times to allow him to go get a job more recently, suggesting that this job be him working one of those booths at a parking garage so he could take people's tickets and sit there and read um, while he's not taking tickets. We've done everything we could to try to ensure that he's freed up to be able to devote all of his time and attention and energy to the work of the Lord. A few years ago, I was able to step away from nine plus years of work with Starbucks. Last year, Brian was able to step away from a combination of working at UPS and the Morning Center. Though the three of us are currently supported by the church, our position remains the same. We don't ever want there to be any hindrance to the progress of the gospel. We don't ever want our uh, salaries to thwart the ministry 
of this church. And therefore, I'm so thankful for how this church has approached these issues that can sometimes be quite sticky for the church. In reality, my experience prior to Grace Church, when it came to this conversation and this subject, was, wasn't very good. It was, it, was, it was quite poor and grieves me at uh, just a number of things that uh, happened in the past and stories as well that I've heard from other brothers where um, it just has not ended well when these sticky things can't come to uh, an agreement upon. Well, third, gospel living. Loving others to win them to Christ. Verses 19 through 27. In this section, Paul didn't begin with questions. He answers, however, some of the questions that he had posed earlier. He is free, but again, he's not taking up his right to material support. What does his freedom lead to? It becomes a voluntary pathway to be a slave to all men that he may win more to Christ. In this section, there are five categories of becoming all things to all men in order that by all means he might save some. The first one, the first category is this, as one who is free. Isn't it good news that the gospel liberates? He's free. Not a freedom to pursue sin. No genuinely regenerate person continues on the path of sin. To do so would be to remain in your bondage or to remain in your slavery to sin. Rather, the gospel liberates from this bondage of sin. Through Christ, we are free to pursue and enjoy all of the benefits procured for us through Christ's atoning death and resurrection. In our bondage, we died with him. He nailed our debt to the cross, as Colossians 2 clearly states. When he was raised, we were raised with him to walk in newness of light. Or, as Romans 6 can say it more powerfully, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we, will, or we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. It was Jesus who said in Luke chapter 9, 23, if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And he says a bit more in Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38, when he said the same thing as he did in Luke 9, and then followed it with, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What will man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Philippians 2, Paul said, to consider others' interest is more important than yourselves. He was talking about the humanity, humility, and exaltation of Jesus. This is echoed elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom. Remember, as one who is free. You, brethren, were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's Romans 6 again. You were once a slave to sin. You were once in bondage, but now you are a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do people who are freed from their sin do? They love and they serve. Who do they love and they serve? They love and they serve God. And they love and serve others in the name of Christ with the strength that Christ provides for the glory of Christ and for the good of the soul of the person or people they are loving and serving. This is one of the benefits. This is one of the rewards that Paul holds out that comes from the gospel. You want your life to count for something? Then show your love for Christ and for others by making yourself a slave in order to win more people to Christ. What is he doing here? What does he mean by this? He's adapting. He loves them enough to become like them. Not like them by joining in their sin, but taking the time to understand them, to understand their system of belief, their worldview, and the way of living so that he is situated in the best position to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. This is how we understand our relationship with others. He has enslaved himself to others. That's the meaning of the text. Five times he uses, in this section, five times he uses the word win. To win them to whom? To win them to Christ. So here's a series of questions that I have for us. Should you have the same love toward others who are lost? Should we have the same love toward others that Paul is demonstrating here? Should we have the same love towards others who are lost? Yes. That's an easy one. Now the questions get a little bit more difficult. Do you have the same Lord, do you have the same love toward those who are lost? This isn't a should you question, but a do you question. In what ways then are you posturing your life to demonstrate this love for them? By all means, you should pray. But I think too many Christians, too many times, use prayer as an excuse to keep them from obedience. Well, I, I'm, I'll, I'll pray about it. Paul doesn't talk about praying about it here. He's pursuing them. He has been praying for them. True prayer will always lead you to obedience. True prayer will always motivate you toward love to God and love toward God others don't stop just with prayer we must consider how to leverage our life to win them to Christ we know this is not saying that we can save them none of us have that ability to save anyone only God can save them through the work of Christ how well do you know your neighbors how well do you know those in our neighborhood 
that attend here each and every Sunday? How well do you know your coworkers? The teams that your kids play on, how well do you know them? Are you taking advantage of these relationships in, in order to get to know them so that you will be given the opportunity to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I was in New York, and I was meeting with a few ministry leaders. And uh, all of you know New York City is a large city. Uh, in Manhattan, there's five boroughs. In Manhattan, there are eight million people. The surrounding four boroughs, there are five million people. So do the math that's there. All five boroughs, uh, 13 million uh, people that are, that are there in the New York City area. And that's not counting just what they consider just the tri-state area with Connecticut and New Jersey nearby. And so it's very conceivable that you walk on the same street, you can live on the same street with somebody, and you may never see them just because of the density of the population. Well, I was encouraged by some of the leadership there with Metro New York Baptist Association because they required of all of their employees, he, he said, uh, there are a few places here on this street near our workplace. We require all of our employees to go to this bodega. And that a bodega is a, um, it's a, it's a, like a little convenience store. And so we encourage, or we not encourage, we tell all of our employees, you are required to go to this place. The reason for that is because they had built and established a relationship with the people in this bodega. And so they were taking 13 million people and they started to say, let's just visit some of the, let's visit the same spot as often as we can in order to uh, establish a relationship with people that we're going to more likely see than these happen chance occurrences. And I thought this was a wise approach to have. And here where we live, there's more of a likelihood where you live, where you work, where you go get groceries, where you play sports, where you go to the park, where you exercise, where you fill in the blank, more of an opportunity for you to get to know the same person. How are you taking advantage of that? How are you posturing your life to be around them even more? If we are deficient in any of these areas, any of these questions that I just said a, little, a few moments ago, it's not because it's just not in our personality to reach out to people. It's a heart issue. It's a love and service issue because the Lord is going to put you around lost people. He's going to do that. Out of love for his glory and his desire to see them come into his kingdom to be joined into his family. And he puts his ministers of reconciliation around them so that they can make their appeal to them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But don't see lost people as your project. They are people whom we are to love, to serve, and people that we are to humbly and with broken hearts and intentionally point to the living water and bread of life, Jesus Christ. Paul said to Jews, he became like a Jew. This is a remarkable statement. Why is it a remarkable statement? Because Paul is a Jew. It'd be like me saying, hey, I'm becoming American in order to reach Americans, or uh, the Akalim saying, I become Nigerian in order to reach Nigerians. Or Ashina, I become an Indian in order to reach Indians. Paul's ethnicity was no longer front and center. This is important. His ethnicity was no longer front and center. As a person. As a person. 
that's where you begin with people. As a person, front and center, his identity is in Christ. He has a new family with a new king and a new allegiance. Scholar Tom Schreiner is helpful here when he said, Adherence to the Mosaic laws, especially in mind, and practically that would be seen in observance of the weekly Sabbath and the purity laws that the Jews observed. So a couple of examples would be when Paul had Timothy circumcised, not as a requirement for salvation, but for cultural reasons as he sought to minister the Jews in the synagogue. Schreiner says again, um, again, and he's quoting in uh, Acts chapter 18, that we see Paul following Jewish customs and taking what was probably a Nazarite vow when he purified himself and later when he paid for the vows of four others in Jerusalem to refute Jewish claims that he was demanding that Jews abandon the law. Paul was adapting, living like a Jew in order to win the Jews to Christ, to those under the law. This category is similar, though not identical, to living like a Jew. Paul is considering those who are living in the old era of redemptive history when the Mosaic law was what the Jews lived by. He was careful to say that he himself was not under the law. And the reason for this is Romans 6.14. Sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Christians are now under the law of Christ. This law had three uses. One is a mirror reflecting to us the perfect righteousness of Christ and our own sinfulness as a way to restrain evil and as a guide to those in Christ to the works God has ordained that we should walk in. Paul was not under the law as a means to save him. He understood that Christ was his fulfillment in all that the law required. Therefore, he was under the law of Christ. Again, Galatians is really helpful here. Listen to these litany of verses. 323, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Chapter 4, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. 421, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Chapter 3, 22. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under the sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. In verse 10, for as many as those, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The law came as a schoolmaster in order to lead us to Christ. So out of love for Christ and love for others, Paul was willing to live according to the law, though he himself was not under the law, so that he could win those who were living according to the law. What about those who were without the law? A little bit tongue-tied around here. Those who are without the law. This is speaking primarily to the Gentiles. Scholars, one of the scholars said this, Paul did not insist on boundary markers, things such as observing the Sabbath, purity laws, circumcision. He didn't insist on these boundary markers uh, that separate Jews from Gentiles when ministering among those who do not follow the Jewish law. His abstinence from the law among the Gentiles was not an effort to curry favor with them, 
but to win them to Christ. His motivation was fundamentally missional, not cultural. He didn't lack cultural sensitivity. His primary motivation was evangelistic. What about to those who are weak? Last week, we looked at chapter 8, verse 13. It says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Stumble. How you consider your weak brother or sister in Christ. I don't believe this is what Paul has in view here. He is aiming to win the weak to Christ who were possibly pagans who, when converted, will be weak, young, and immature in the faith. This is what Christian love looks like. What is, it, what is becoming all things to all men so that by all means he might save some? What does that not mean? It's never a decision to compromise the clearly revealed will of God or what your conscience forbids you from doing. It also means being careful that you do not push your cultural freedoms on others as the standard for which they are to live. All that is essential to the Christian faith we are to hold tightly. Matters that are important but secondary we hold loosely. So what does it mean to become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some? It means being adaptable. Or as Greg Gilbert puts, if the world recoils from him, Paul wants such revulsion to be because of the message of Christ and him crucified, not because Paul has insisted on some right of his own. So here's what I believe to be some fair questions to pose to us. What right do we currently have that is not innately sinful that God might have you lay down in order for you to be situated for better relational opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel. I think the temptation after that question will begin to think about all the things we immediately that we don't want to give up. So let me ask you this follow-up question for you to ask yourself. What does it look like to think of this question through the gospel lens as one who has received all that we need for life and godliness? And then a follow-up question. What does love require when moving toward people to share the gospel. In what ways are you going to need to adapt to others in order that you can win them to Christ? Verses 24 through 27, he gives us a metaphor that brings it all together. This metaphor also sets up the warning that he's going to give and address in the next chapter so that they don't repeat the same sin that prevented the Israelites from entering the promised land. The warning here is this, do not disqualify yourself. In other words, be careful that you are not showing by your life that you were never really the Lord's to begin with. Rather, run in a way to receive the imperishable prize. Run in such a way as to not disqualify yourself. Again, this is not him hinting around that a genuine convert might lose his or her salvation. The doctrine of God preserving his saints is still the faithful teaching and belief recorded in the Bible. Rather, it's a very clear warning that those who begin the race of Christ will continue in the race of Christ and they will finish the race of Christ. It is a race that's going to be marred with hardship. It is a race that has obstacles of suffering. It is a race that is ripe with our own sin. But the true Christian, the genuine born-again follower of Jesus Christ, will endure the hardship 
They will make their way through the suffering and they will repent from their wicked sinfulness. So as I wrap today's sermon up with this, I want to return again to our initial question. What's better for you? To do what is good or to do what is right? The answer to this question, to receive it, we need only to look to the example of Christ and to live as those who understand that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Let us humble ourselves. Let us move toward the lost in hopes of winning them to Christ. Let us be willing to lay down our rights for the progress of the gospel. And let us run and finish this race faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the work of your spirit. And we pray that you would work your obedience into our heart. And we pray that you would use your word and we pray that you would use questions that were raised in this sermon to examine us so that we'll be faithful stewards of the gospel that has been entrusted to us as not something just to hold on for ourselves but a gospel that we should be sharing to those who you bring into our path out of love for you and out of love for them out of service to you and out of service to them we pray Lord in the coming days that we would be faithful stewards and heralds of this precious word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.